As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Today I am chatting with Dr. Lucky, who is a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist practicing at Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York in New York City. She's passionate about empowering people and educating them about their reproductive health and options for fertility preservation and family building. In today's episode, we discuss fertility as we age. Dr. Lucky will answer questions such as, is there anything we can do to improve egg quality? Should we be freezing our eggs? What does advanced maternal age mean? And much more. Let's dive right in. Just a little disclaimer before we start this episode. This podcast does not provide medical advice. The information on this podcast is for informational purposes only. No material on this site is intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Hello, Dr. Lucky. We are excited to have you on tonight. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be on. Yeah, this is going to be a a hot topic. I think that many will resonate with. And when we were talking prior to this, I was, I was saying how, you know, when I was younger, I, it's, it's just like always this fear in the back of your head. Like, I know I want to have a family as I get older. I just, I wonder if I'm going to have trouble with this. And it's just something that's always in the back of your head. And, you know, this is what we're going to talk about today, which is just talking about infertility, like as you age. And I know when I got pregnant with our fourth, I w- I hit that magical number of 35. And so I'm excited to hear what you have to say about this because I was all of a sudden this advanced maternal age, which I mean, made me feel a little bit strange because I was like, but am I really? I don't know. I feel like a lot of women <laughs> nowadays have babies after age 35, but you know, we're given this term. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, on that term in general and, you know, why they ended up coming up with that advanced maternal age. I mean, I still think that it's a lot better than what some people might call it. Some people say geriatric pregnancy, which I think is crazy. I feel like it's something that I've heard a lot in like the media, said in movies and things like that. And I've definitely heard patients say that they were referred to as geriatric age, uh, maternal age. And That's not a nomenclature that I've ever really heard used in a clinical setting. We've always said AMA or advanced maternal age. So I guess, you know, when you compare it to the worst thing that you could call it, it's like not as bad, but 
I definitely get that it, it puts people off and it makes people feel like they're labeled and it makes them feel bad about their age. The reason why that even became a thing is because the fact is that there are certain risk factors or things that need to be looked out for and carefully monitored as we get older in pregnancy. And it's not like when you turn 35 at the flip of the switch, all of a sudden you become this high risk group and you're so much, you know, worse off than you were a year prior when you were 34, because that obviously doesn't make sense. But we just start to see a higher rate of certain health problems or risk factors as people get into their late 30s, early 40s, and beyond. And at, the older they get, the more accelerated some of these physiologic or biologic changes are. For example, you know, a tendency towards diabetes in pregnancy, um, a tendency towards high blood pressure um, and preeclampsia, things like that, which stem from a lot of placental problems. You know, some of it has to just do with how our blood vessels change over time and how our body's able to adapt to a pregnancy changing over time as we age. But it's not all doom and gloom. Um, you know, we see a lot of women in their late 30s, early 40s who have healthy pregnancies, full term, no issues. But we can't glaze over the fact that they are inherently just because of age at an increased risk of certain outcomes. And for that reason, there are certain protocols in place like you know, bringing people in for more frequent growth scans and monitoring for problems with their blood pressure and just being extra vigilant. So if we know, okay, I'm not going to be starting my family until, you know, I'm late 30s. Is there anything that we can do when we're younger to kind of prep our bodies to have a healthier pregnancy since we know we're going to be having a baby later on? Yeah. I mean, I definitely think maintaining a healthy body weight, exercising regularly, like all the things that are just good in general for your health are going to bode well and, you know, give you a better starting point for the healthiest pregnancy possible. So if you have any chronic medical conditions, the better they're, you know, controlled and the more compliant you are with your medications, really avoiding unhealthy habits, like long-term chronic cigarette smoking, which is going to change the way your blood vessels function. It's going to change your cardiovascular system, your lung function, like really avoiding any of those types of toxic chronic habits or behaviors that can predispose you to a lot of the major problems that we worry about in pregnancy as we get older. But I think the other part, which I didn't touch on because advanced maternal age, when we think about it, we're really, you know, it's, it's more about the obstetric side of things and the health of the pregnancy, but I'm a fertility specialist. So the focus that I usually have when I think about the number 35 and turning, um, you know, 35 or 40, what does that all mean? It's, it, it comes down to the fact that our egg quality changes over time, right? So we as women are born with all of the eggs that we're ever going to have. We're born with about two to three million. And by the time we get into menopause, the average age of which is 50 in this country, we have about less than a thousand, right? So most of us, most of you who are listening right now are probably somewhere between those two time points. And the number of eggs that you have is something that people will fixate on because it's something that you can actually test. You can do a blood test called AMH or anti-malarian hormone, 
hormone. It's a blood marker that basically, you know, the higher it is, the more eggs you have at that given snapshot in time. And we also can do an ultrasound. And we can count how many eggs we actually see at the surface of each ovary. And it's always a very easy to count number, like 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, right? And those aren't all the eggs that you have. We're not counting hundreds of thousands or millions. We're counting a very small, limited subset that are visible because they've been pulled to the surface of the ovary or recruited, so to speak. And then normally, if you're not on birth control and you're someone who ovulates regularly, your brain is sending a signal and the first one to get selected is the one that randomly gets to ovulate and have a chance of turning into a pregnancy. All the other ones that came to the surface of the ovary get thrown away. But something important to know is the number that get pulled to the surface that are in play that have a chance to be the one that ovulates, that the size of that that cohort really depends on how many you have overall. So imagine it's like rationing. The more eggs you have at any given point, the more eggs you're pulling to the surface. The reason I'm telling you all this is because when we as fertility doctors do things like egg freezing or IVF to try to help someone get pregnant with fertility treatments, I can only get to what's pulled to the surface, right? So that's why egg count matters to us because it means, you know, if you have a high egg count, you have an abundance of eggs that I can get to, which makes it easier for me to treat you. It just gives me more options, right? That's the only reason why your egg count matters. But remember, you're only ovulating one egg, so it's not really a numbers game. It's all about the quality of that one egg. So while we age and lose the number of eggs that we have, the more important thing when it comes to trying on your own, just your natural fertility is your age because your age will dictate the chance that that one ovulated egg ends up being a genetically normal healthy egg that can give rise to a healthy pregnancy and a shocking fact is that a lot of our eggs are abnormal and that's true even if you're 20. if i went to a 20 year old's ovaries and took out all of their eggs that they had and turned all of them into embryos by fertilizing them with sperm and i tried to genetically test every single one our data shows that about 20% of those resulting embryos would be genetically abnormal. And most of these are not, you know, errors that are compatible with life, like, you know, missing multiple chromosomes or having extra DNA that it's not supposed to have. Most of these embryos will never implant, or if they implant, they'll result in a miscarriage at some point. And then very few could actually turn into a live birth, but, you know, a child with problems like Down syndrome, for example. Now, if 20% is the lowest rate because you're in your 20s, you're in your fertile prime years, hmm. by the time you get to 35, it's like 30 to 35% of embryos coming from your eggs are going to be abnormal. By the time you get to 37, 38, 50%, 40, like 60 to 70%, and at 42, 43, we start to approach 80 to 90%. So that's the core issue. And a lot of people don't understand that. They think it's about running out of eggs and the numbers. It's all about the quality. And so is there anything you can do to slow down reproductive aging in terms of healthy habits to go back to your original question? Well, the one thing you can really do is to avoid smoking because smoking is known to accelerate how fast you lose your eggs. But in terms of egg quality, we don't really have a good handle on the things that influence egg quality. Like we think it's genetics. For sure, environmental exposures could probably have a factor, but we don't know exactly what you know, behaviors would contribute to worsened egg quality over others. And I think there's a lot of information out there on that, but, it, you know, the jury's still out. There is, aren't clear data that really guide us one way or the other in terms of how to slow down that process. 
So the best thing that I can suggest is thinking about your family building goals early and considering fertility preservation. I wanted to mention a few things about what you were saying. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about, or at least kind of reemphasize, was how you were saying that, you know, these eggs are not always going to be of this superb quality and won't result, you know, in a fertilized like baby, right? And you can result in a miscarriage. And I think people can get kind of confused about that especially, you know, as I was younger before I even, you know, went to PA school, I didn't really understand the whole concept. And I was like, well, can you prevent a miscarriage? Or, you know, like once you start, you know, a potential miscarriage and you're bleeding and you know you're going to miscarry. And constantly I see this in the emergency room where a woman will be like, can you please just stop it? Like, is there something we can do to stop it? And so, you know, I sit down with them and I explain, you know, this is not something that this is, you know, our bodies are doing the work for us, you know, they've, they've discovered that this, this egg, you know, is not going to fertilize properly and it doesn't have everything that it needs. And so it's just doing what it needs to do. And, you know, it's, it's shedding the lining just like you would when you have your menstrual cycle and then you can, you start over, you know, but I think just kind of talking about that and reemphasizing it because I don't, you know, it's one of those things that, is, you know, always a question that I always get in the emergency room where people are like, well, you know, could we possibly have done anything differently? And the answer is no, you know? Right. I always say that it's, it's that they, a lot of times I would say about 90% of miscarriages are because the embryo was missing or had extra DNA that it Mm. shouldn't have had. Mm -hmm. There are other reasons like you can have fibroids that are in a location that make it harder for an embryo to stay implanted. You can have autoimmune conditions that make it harder for your immune system to allow the embryo to invade and continue to implant. But those are less common. The most common cause are these genetic errors. And if the embryo is abnormal and it's missing the proper instructions to guide normal growth and development, it's often going to stop growing. And then, you know, basically it stops producing the hormones it's supposed to produce And then your progesterone levels start falling because it's usually sending a signal to your ovary to tell it to make progesterone. So once those levels drop, that's when your lining breaks down and sheds. Or it's the bleeding could be from the embryo detaching itself, right? But if it's an abnormal embryo, there's nothing you can do to reverse that process. Right. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, and you you touched base on this, is, you know, is there any way... Well, before I ask it, I'm actually going to ask you, have you ever read a book called It All Starts with the Egg or It Starts with the Egg? Yes, I have. I actually have it in front of me. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. What are your thoughts on that book? I think that it has a lot of interesting ideas. I think it's very comprehensive. I think um, it's a nice overview of all the different things that are out there that people talk about. And I am not someone who's anti-supplement. I'm all about, you know, utilizing anything and everything that is at our disposal that Mm -hmm. may or may not make a difference as long as it's not harmful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think sometimes some of what's in there is a bit of an overreach. There isn't a lot of concrete data um, behind it. And there aren't even human studies behind some of these things, but do I tell my patients to take antioxidants and coenzyme Q10 and, you know, to try acupuncture and, and all of these other things that don't have very strong evidence to show a significant benefit? Of course I do, because mm-hmm. 
you know, I'm, I'm not above saying that we don't know everything that there is to know and what could be helpful or effective for one person's case might not be for another person. And sometimes really hard to study because everyone's their own entity and every problem is so unique. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good comprehensive book. Is it my Bible? Do I, you know, go by every line of the book and say, okay, yeah, this is like the most well-researched thought out book I've ever read. No. So I would take some of it with a grain of salt. And I think it, it might overemphasize the role that you can play and the control that you have on your egg quality. And that part I think is hard for me to reconcile with because I treat women with infertility day in, day out. And some of it is just age related. And to a certain degree, like there's nothing you can do about it other than trying to get around it, right? Mm -hmm. Like IVF is one way to get around it. If you're actively trying to conceive and we think, okay, you definitely are up against some egg quality issues. IVF can be helpful because now you can work with a multitude of eggs instead of just one per month and, you know, pick the best one that, you know, out of all of them that turn into embryos, you can pick the healthiest one. And that helps to overcome a lot of the inefficiency of human reproduction. And like I said earlier, I don't think every single person has to freeze their eggs or freeze embryos. But if you know that you're going to be delaying uh, when you try to conceive and if you want to have a large family and you're starting, you know, at 35, it's important to be aware of how your body's going to change over the next five to 10 years, because you need to be realistic about your timeline. And if you want to be absolutely sure that you're equipping yourself with all of the tools possible, it's never a bad idea to consider, you know, freezing because it, it's, it can help you ex extend your timeline. When, whenever you freeze, the amount of time it's frozen, whether it's eggs or embryos, have no bearing on their reproductive potential and your uterus doesn't age. So a lot of times that's like the easy workaround um, versus trying to play catch up when it's a little bit late. Right, right. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, some of these like the coenzyme Q10 and then the acupuncture and things. I actually did a podcast with an acupuncturist last week that went live and she works very closely. I really like, it's kind of like a marriage between Eastern and Western medicine. So she actually works like alongside of um, many OBGYNs. So it's kind of like this hand in hand and they work closely together, which I really liked. And I just, I think even if it like relaxes the patient, right? Yes. Like that's one step further in the right direction, you know? Yeah, it's not harmful. And it might, it, sometimes I feel anecdotally, I've noticed that sometimes people respond better. So I right. don't know if it helps with the way your body metabolizes drugs. Like I don't understand how it works and I don't pretend to know. I mean, it's been around for what, 4,000 years, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I definitely think, you know, I, I go to an acupuncturist to relax yeah. And I yeah. feel like it makes me less anxious. It helps with my like neck spasms. So, you know, I'm all about it. I think that it's it's not harmful, could be helpful. If it's something that you enjoy, then why not? If it's something mm -hmm. that's going to stress you out and you don't have insurance coverage for it and it's expensive and you're already strapped for cash because you're paying for expensive fertility treatments, then maybe don't do it because I don't know that it's going to make or break the situation, but I definitely recommend it to a lot of my patients. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything else you want to add as far as talking about, you know, fertility as we age? And then I can go into some of the questions that we have from the community. 
Um, yeah, I think that the most important key takeaways are it's never too early to start thinking about it and planning out, you know, what what you want to do in terms of family building. If you're in a relationship or you're in a place where you're ready to do this on your own or with someone, I think talk to your OBGYN. You can also make an appointment with a fertility doctor like myself. Coming to a fertility specialist does not mean that you're committing to freezing your eggs or committing to IVF or any sort of treatment. A lot of patients come to me for the education that um, you know most of us missed out on in health class when the focus was on how to prevent pregnancy. A lot of people don't know how to even start trying to get pregnant and what the whole timing issue is, You know, timing it around ovulation. So I think just getting some basic knowledge about how your biology works, getting individualized testing to see where your egg count is and understanding that knowing you have a high egg count or a low egg count doesn't tell us anything about your chance of conceiving if you were to start trying tomorrow, right? Because that is not a numbers game. And your age is the only thing we have to go off of when we're thinking about your egg quality. And the only thing that you can really do to set yourself up for success is lead the healthiest life possible. Anything good for your general health is going to be good for your fertility and avoid, you know, all the things that we talked about, like cigarette smoking. And then finally, if you're in a place where you want to delay having kids or you want a big family and you're starting in your mid thirties or later, definitely talk to a fertility doctor, even if you're not sure what you want to do about it just to understand what the ins and outs are of egg and or embryo freezing, because I went through it. So I've been through it as a patient and on the professional side, help guide so many women through it. But you know, when I was 34, 35, my husband and I froze embryos as soon as we had our first daughter, because we knew we wanted to do this again, possibly one or two more times. And with my career, there's no way I'm rushing to have another child, you know, back to back. So Now at 38, I'm really like, I feel a lot calmer knowing that I have multiple embryos on ice because I just know all too well how your body changes in this age range. So um, I've lived through it personally and professionally, and that's why this is so important. This is a cause that's near and dear to my heart because I think we need to just be talking about it and spreading the word. So even if you're listening to this and maybe it's not applicable to you, I urge you to speak to your friends and you know family mm-hmm. members about it because I think that spreading the word is key because at a certain point, if it's too late in the game, it can become very challenging. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through, I'm interested to hear, because I, I didn't experience this firsthand, so I think it would be cool to talk about a patient coming to you for the first time. So say they've been struggling with infertility and what would that first appointment look like? What would you be talking to them about? Would you be running any types of tests and kind of like, how would you go from there? You know? Yeah. So the first appointment is a lot of talking. I have patients who come in and honestly, like the first 40 to 50 minutes is me talking to them, finding out their medical history, understanding if they have any genetic predispositions for any fertility or pregnancy related complications, um, understanding if they're at risk of passing any sort of cancer causing genes or things like that, Mm -hmm. you know, that are an opportunity where maybe you knew something about their health that could change the way they set themselves up in terms of their family building because you can genetically test embryos, et cetera. So we do a full, you know, kind of screening of their entire medical history 
making sure that they're optimized for pregnancy, that they're on prenatal vitamins, they're not on medications that might be dangerous to a developing fetus. So it's like this whole preconception counseling. If I'm, you know, seeing a couple, I'll do genetic testing on both of them to see what mutations, if any, they carry. These aren't things that we are testing, you know, to try to find disease in them. It's about trying to understand a risk assessment to see if there's any chance that the combination of their genes together could result in a child with any sort of major medical problem like cystic Mm -hmm. fibrosis, for example. So we do that type of screening. And then, you know, I understand what their challenges are, what, how long they've been trying, what the issues could be, like, what is their, what's their cycle regularity? Could it be that they're not ovulating? And so we do a full comprehensive workup. So the last bit of that in-person consultation, I'll do an ultrasound, a vaginal or pelvic ultrasound, and I'll look at the uterus, I'll look at the ovaries, I'll get a sense of how many eggs there are at the surface of the ovaries, we'll do blood work to check all of the hormones like thyroid function, um, check the ovarian hormones like estrogen and progesterone, understand if someone's not ovulating regularly, if they have irregular cycles, why that may be. Um, so a lot can come out of that first visit where you're figuring it out. Sometimes I'm diagnosing women with fibroids or problems in their uterus that they had no idea that they had that may or may not impact their fertility depending on their location. So we get a lot of information. It's information gathering. The next couple of days, blood work results are coming back. And then we kind of come up with a game plan because, you know, the, the test results might dictate how we go about helping them get pregnant. If they're coming to me for infertility, I tell them, look, human reproduction is extremely inefficient. The chance of one ovulated egg meeting the sperm, fertilizing successfully, growing into an embryo a week later that makes its way through the fallopian tube to the uterine cavity and finds the right spot to implant, the chance of all those things lining up perfectly is about 15%, right? And, And it might be lower if you're older and you're worried about egg quality. So doing any sort of fertility treatment is basically just getting around that and trying to rectify that inefficiency. And there's different treatment options, two major families of treatment options, one very laid back approach that's not that much more efficient than trying on your own, but it might make it all the difference for that one individual or that couple. And then there's more comprehensive treatments like IVF, where you can genetically test the embryos. You don't have to though, you can freeze them all. And so it's a form of fertility preservation. And, you know, once we nail down the plan and then we execute. So mm-hmm. I think it just depends, the plan will depend on the test results, your age and what your family building goals are. No, that's great. I think that's great to kind of lay out for for people that might be listening and curious. Uh, I also have another question for you as you were talking and so I had had, I've had a couple miscarriages, but two of them were back to back. And I remember asking at the time, I said, you know, like, is there anything like, could we maybe check out my hormones? I think because I was having very short cycles. So I was bleeding like every two and a half, three weeks, like it was kind of bizarre. And I think I was just really, it just had a lot of estrogen going on and not a lot of progesterone. And so, you know, I had found out at that time, you know, they don't really do any blood work until after you've had three miscarriages and then they'll kind of do a workup. Is that typically what you have found as well? Um, That's kind of what I've heard around like across the board, but I was just curious. Yeah, I think that's kind of the standard. No, I think it's no longer becoming the standard. That used to be the standard that you had to have three miscarriages to be 
someone that had recurrent pregnancy loss, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you would, you know, it would warrant a full workup. But now the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and most clinicians are doing this workup after two losses. Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah. Because it's a lot to go through. Well, it is. Know from going through it. it is. And especially when they're back to back, you know, it's just, it's a lot. And And even though, you know, your chances, as you mentioned, are (laughs) very small, you know, you don't realize how how small those chances are that all of those things can line up together and that your egg quality is good. Miscarriage is very, very, very common. You know, it's one of those things. I mean, I didn't even realize that until I was practicing in medicine. I mean, we we see in any given shift, I I will see multiple, you know, patients coming in for for miscarriage. It's it's just so common and people unfortunately don't talk about it as as much. And so it's one of those things that we keep to ourselves a lot. I think people are talking about it more now, which is great. Yes. Yes. But it's still shocking. Like I'm sure you see it in the ER that people are coming in thinking like this is like a life or death situation that they're hemorrhaging. Whereas yeah. we see it all the time. This is how a miscarriage looks. Mm-hmm. And oh, I yeah. think it's only now something that people are talking about more. This month is pregnancy and infant loss awareness. Mm-hmm. And so I think having these types of, I don't want to say events, but dates that are marked on the calendar and, mm-hmm. people, you know, it, it's an impetus for people to discuss it mm-hmm. and open up about their experiences. I do think it's helpful, even though it's painful and triggering to some. Yes. And I think it's important to normalize it. Like this is a human experience. It's mm-hmm. that, you know, if in your twenties, 20% of embryos could be abnormal. So for most of us, we're saying like 25%, if not higher, if you're, you know, in your mid thirties and older, that very clearly explains why one in four pregnancies end in miscarriage. And some of them mm-hmm. might go unrecognized just as a late you know, or off period that um, seemed a little bit strange because not everyone's tracking their cycle so diligently. Yeah. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so I am going to pull up the questions. What do you think? Good timing? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. So, oh, (laughs) this is, we kind of already touched on this discussion on fish oil, CoQ10. Is there anything that you think does appropriately have a good amount of research to back its use? So I think coenzyme Q10 is probably... Um, the one that I, I find most compelling. Okay. It provides energy and 
it, it is an antioxidant. Um, it's been around, it's been in clinical medicine for a long time. It's been used to boost heart health. And there are some studies that show in older women with diminished ovarian reserve, it can improve response to treatment as well. Mm-hmm. So I really don't see a downside in taking it. And a lot of my patients take 600 milligrams per day. Like I said, it's not going to make or break anything, but it's certainly not harmful. And there's no downside. That is the uh, one of the supplements I did start taking after my second miscarriage before I got pregnant with my our fourth. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I took that. I took a baby aspirin and I took I was using some progesterone. And that that one, so that next I had done that after the second one after the second miscarriage for two months and then I got pregnant with my fourth. Yeah. And, you know, know, it's one of those things where I'll never know, (laughs) you know, like, was it that stuff or was it just that that was a good egg? Who knows? You know, it's like, this is why it's so hard to study and get a different answer. But I will tell you this, 50% of patients who have recurrent pregnancy loss are going to have all normal testing. So that's another area of frustration or another source of frustration is that you know, anytime I'm sending these tests off, it's a very specialized testing, by the way. It's like looking at the structure of your chromosomes and your partner's chromosomes, tests that aren't routinely done and specialized ways of looking at your uterine cavity and looking for blood clotting markers and things like that. Mm-hmm. And 50% of people will have all negative or normal results. And that's okay. And I warn everyone about that. And also, you know, something to make you feel uplifted about everything is that 60% of people will go on to have a live birth without any intervention. So it's hard to know because eventually if you keep trying, you're going to overcome some of that inefficiency that we talked about. And whether or not you did intervention A, B, and C may or may not have made a difference, but who cares? When you're going through it, people are willing to throw everything in the kitchen sink at a problem, right? Yeah. And I'm okay with that as long as it's not going to have a detrimental effect on your health or cause, you know, adverse effects or, you know, outcomes. I think that that's the most important key takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's see here. We, you had touched on this. Should you freeze eggs at a certain age in fear of fertility issues as you get older? Now you had mentioned like what, if, if you are thinking, you know, this is, something where we're thinking about having a baby or I'm by myself, I'm thinking about having a baby in my late thirties. What age did you say you think was when you should start thinking about that? So honestly, the earlier you do it, the more you get out of it, right? Mm -hmm. Egg freezing is the first part of IVF. Um, It's stimulating your ovaries with eight to 10 days of medication to try to get all of those recruited eggs that are available at the surface of the ovary to mature, not just the Mm -hmm. one that would normally mature in response to signals from your brain that make you ovulate. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to get every single one because guess what? At the end of that cycle, when you ovulate that one egg, all the others that are just sitting at the surface get thrown out. That's always happening in our bodies. Mm -hmm. So when you go through an egg freezing cycle, we're basically salvaging and getting all of them out that we can get to or can access in that one cycle before they can get thrown out and we freeze them. So, you know, the earlier you do it in your life, the more eggs you're going to have at the surface of the ovary because you have more overall because you're starting out at an earlier point in your life. And 
you're going to also get a higher proportion of those eggs being genetically normal and healthy if they turned into embryos. Now, I'm not suggesting everyone turn 18, graduate high school and freeze their eggs. Like, that's <laughs> not at all what I'm saying. But I do think that the way we view egg freezing is important. The way mm-hmm. I think about it as a fertility doctor is it's a backup. It is a backup plan in the event you ever have fertility issues and you need to do IVF instead of stimulating your ovaries at 38 Mm. when the count will be lower and you're going to get fewer eggs from one cycle. And a lot of those eggs may result in abnormal embryos. Why not dip into the supply you froze when you were 31, 32? You're going to have a lot more to work with and a lot more of them will become healthy embryos. So your chance of having this streamlined uncomplicated journey in your fertility treatment is so much higher if you're using more plentiful, younger, healthy eggs. So Mm -hmm. the answer is, if you're thinking about it and you're concerned, like, let's say a lot of my patients are like 33, 34, and they'll be single and they're like, well, realistically, you know, I want to have two or three kids. And if I meet someone now, realistically, like we wouldn't be rushing to have kids maybe we would start at like 35, 36. So already I know that maybe not for baby number one, but perhaps for baby number two or three, my odds of needing help to get pregnant will rise by that age. So I might as well just preemptively, you know, set myself up for success and freeze eggs. So that's kind of how I would view it. It's a a strategic move. right? And I think the strategy depends on how old you are and how many kids you want. Mm -hmm. I've had patients who at 33, maybe they're even in a couple and they're like, well, you know, we're actually trying to get pregnant. It's not happening. And when I give them their options of, okay, look, we can just do things like inseminations to try to just make it more likely to happen now on the spot. And that doesn't really save anything for the future. Or you can do IVF and freeze a bunch of embryos like what I did when I was 34. And some of them are like, you know, what? I only want one child or, and if I have two, like, that's great, but that's not like a must for me. Or maybe they know that they're going to have two, but they're willing to not have that big of a gap in between. Um, and they're realistic based on what I'm telling them about how our biology changes over time. And they may not opt to go to IVF as their first move and say mm-hmm. like, let's only do that if we have to do it. Right. Let's try that more laid back treatment option that doesn't involve freezing embryos on the side for the future. So it just, you know, could look so different depending on who you are as an individual and what's important to you. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. So what can young women receiving chemo do to help protect their fertility? Yeah. So chemotherapy, um, there's different types of chemotherapy depending on the cancer that's being treated And certain types are more toxic to the ovaries than others. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, I'd say most are toxic to the ovaries. Chemotherapy tends to attack rapidly dividing cells with high metabolic activity. And so for whatever reason, the testes and the ovaries are very, very sensitive to the effects Mm -hmm. of chemotherapy. And a lot of these effects are irreversible, especially in women, because women aren't making new eggs over time. That's just not part of our biology. So the best prevention is egg freezing or embryo freezing prior to undergoing chemotherapy. For cases where the patient, it's just not feasible to them, or they don't want to go through that process, or maybe they have a really serious cancer where their oncologist doesn't feel that there is a window of opportunity, which is very rare. 
but some really severe leukemias or lymphomas where the patient is very, very ill and can't be, you know, outside of the hospital for a two week period to do this. The best thing we can offer in that scenario is giving them a medication called Lupron to basically shut down their ovaries and induce like a temporary medical menopause type situation, Mm. lowering the metabolic activity of those ovaries and the eggs they contain, and therefore, you know, hopefully subjecting them to less exposure um, to the chemotherapy. There have been mixed results in the studies. It's not a perfect solution. There are some studies that show this could have been protective, but you'll never know because some people are going to get their period back and have some ovarian function restore even after chemotherapy. And it's hard to know if it's the effect of the Lupron or it's just what would have happened anyway. So it's just one of those things that's difficult to study. But those are basically the the main options. Other things that are right now in the research stage are ovarian tissue cryopreservation, because that's another option that has been studied and it's been done and there have been live births from it. Mm -hmm. But it's not something that's prime time. It's definitely Mm -hmm. only done as like research right now, where you can freeze a whole ovary or freeze like tissue from the ovary and then use it later on to extract eggs, which is oh, interesting. Cool. Very cool. Huh. All right. So next one is, so I have not heard of these. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me though, because I feel like people try to make money off of everything, but. Totally. <laughs> right. Hey, when there's a window of opportunity, we must chase <laughs> it. So this is, are the fertility tests that test how many eggs you have accurate? The ones that I've seen on ads on Facebook and Instagram. So. First of all, how accurate can these tests really be? They must be something you take at home. Like, is this something I'm not aware of these? Yeah. So some of them are probably advertised, like we'll draw your blood and tell you how many eggs you have. And then some of them are home testing kits. That test that I talked about earlier on your AMH level. Yes. It can tell you about your egg quantity, but I think that companies are exploiting the fear of women and, you know, ovarian aging and what that all means for their future fertility and saying like, take control of your fertility and check your AMH Mm -hmm. level. But I think it's so misguided because you can have a high AMH level and have poor egg quality Mm -hmm. or have difficulty getting pregnant for a variety of other reasons. So knowing you have a high egg count may help you sleep better at night. But it ultimately, to me as a fertility doctor, doesn't tell me much. It, it's important if you need treatment or if you wanted to go through the process of egg freezing, it's important because that tells me, great, they'll probably do wonderfully because they're going to have a high egg count and I'll be able to access lots of eggs and they'll probably mm-hmm. respond really well to the treatments. But does it tell me anything about your natural fertility? Should you start trying today? Mm-hmm. Does it tell me about the ability of any of those eggs to turn into embryos that are healthy and could one day result in a pregnancy? No, it does not. Yeah. And it, and I mean, it's one of those things, unless you have somebody there to completely interpret what's happening, right? Yes. You might have a low number, but they might be amazing quality. Like you said, I mean, you, there's no way to know. Right. And this is, oh gosh, this is like my new... <laughs> like public service announcement on my on my Instagram is just mm-hmm. these companies that just feed into the fear of women either you know whatever it might be of the fear of gaining weight of the fear of getting wrinkles mm-hmm. the fear of not being able to get pregnant the fear of this the fear of that and you know they monetize it <laughs> and it's the pain of my existence like you're speaking my language right now <laughs> 
I feel like I sound like such an angry person. Um, my, my social media persona sounds angry or just like always irate about something or other because I see so much of this. Uh-huh. And that's yeah. my main reason for why I got onto social media. I never had a public account and I don't have a huge following, but I've, I've been building it because it makes me feel like I'm finally taking doing something, taking control control of this conversation, which is running rampant and unchecked. Yeah. Are are you an Enneagram eight? Do you know what your Enneagram is? No, I'm just, yeah. I, I I always ask everybody because I'm like super into it, but (laughs) yeah, I, (laughs) I think you, you might be an eight or you might be, you might be like a, a two or three, but anyway, so that's how I feel on social media. Like I, I get like fired up every time I'm on there now because I'm like, yeah. oh, there's always some fight I have to like, you know, like fight for. So yes. that's my newest one. And well, I will team up with you on that. Seriously. Right. <laughs> I mean, I would, I, I don't know if you've ever listened to the Dream podcast. It's all mm-hmm. about MLMs, but also touches into it touches it had, the whole episode is dedicated to women's reproductive health and how you know companies are monetizing whatever they can for women who are yeah. like fear of you know infertility and so that's a whole episode and then they have a whole episode on to other me, things. By the way. Yeah, they'll they'll do their home testing or they'll go to some place that's going to tell them about their AMH level, but then they don't have the expertise to properly interpret it. And oftentimes these results are used as a fear tactic to push them to do something like egg freezing without really having the full clinical picture of what it all means. And so then they'll come to me and I have to, you know, deal with all of that. And so I have, you know, a, a very specific, strong feeling against a lot of it because I think that you really should be going to an expert that has the training and expertise to actually tell you what the tests that they're running mean. And I think that when people are trying to actively sell you things, you probably can't trust what they're telling you. Exactly. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, I'm going through these questions and there's so, there are so many questions saying, it almost makes me a little emotional because it's like, oh my gosh, I, I like do cleaning products, laundry detergent, detergents, eating food that's not organic, all affect fertility, like that sort of thing. And like we have enough to worry about, right? Mm-hmm. Then to have to worry about, oh my gosh, the plate I'm eating off of. Oh my gosh, the food that's on the plate. Oh my gosh, the yes. the 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 dishwash soap I'm using to wash the dish. Oh my gosh, the there are, I mean, oh, it is yeah. endless, right? And then you can spend an endless amount of money trying to like perfect your life with these so-called natural, which by the way are not natural. It's just a word that's mm-hmm. tossed around like crazy to make things seem like they're better than others, but they're really not. And you know, we, th- we think that these are going to like affect our fertility in some way. Do you have anything to add on that? Maybe. Yes. I think that it's about lack of control. Mm -hmm. I think that when someone is going through infertility, a lot of times my patients are young and healthy individuals that now all of a sudden are plunged into this feeling of being medicalized. And it's a very new feeling and it's very distressing and they have no idea what the hell is going on, mm-hmm. right? Like they have control over so many different aspects of their life um, or the illusion of control, I should say. But when it comes to your fertility, you have no idea what the hell is going on inside your body. You can't even tell when you're really ovulating. You're just trusting 
this, you know, ovulation predictor kit or the app to tell you when you should be having sex. And you can't trust any of the symptoms you're feeling. Like, do you, did you get pregnant this month? Did you not? You're just waiting for your period. You don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And that loss of control, I think the human reaction, the human nature knee-jerk reaction is let me impose a bunch of other restrictions on myself. So I feel like I'm doing everything that I can, right? So whether it be completely changing everything about your environment and going down that rabbit hole and feeling like you need to surround yourself with this fertility friendly bubble of like products and cosmetics and everything else. And just feeling like you're doing everything you can so that if, if anything fails or doesn't work, you can't blame yourself and you can say that you did everything right. Yeah. Same with diet, same with all the supplements. Like I have patients who show me their medicine cabinet, they take a picture and they show it to me. And I'm like, it's crazy, you know, and it's, it's just like, it could run, it could rule your life, the oh, number yeah. of supplements you're taking. So I think that anytime you find that you're doing something to an extreme like that, that's always a sign that you need to come back down to, you know, whatever it is, your, your baseline mm-hmm. being more moderate. I do think that it's important to try to reduce the load of toxins that we are exposing ourselves to. And I think there's easy things that you can do. I don't think that you need to worry about the dish soap. I don't think you need to worry about every single minute aspect of your daily life. But I do think there are obvious things. Like we know that fragrance, perfume, like those are probably unnecessary chemicals, some of which can act like endocrine disruptors. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like a an easy thing that I found personally to cut out of my regimen because, you know, most people don't need to douse themselves with tons of perfume. It might be something you enjoy smelling like that, but a lot of these fragrances can be toxic and bad. And, you know, I think anything that you can cut out easily without it being hugely disruptive or, you know, depriving yourself of like basic comforts and human needs then I think, why not do that? It's going to make you feel better that you're doing something to have control over it. And there's actual data behind, you know, trying to have a cleaner um, cosmetics routine. And especially when you're pregnant too, like there are chemicals that mimic estrogen. So if you can try to make healthier choices, but know that you can't live in complete isolation and you can't avoid every single chemical there is out there, especially in New York City. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Two things on what you just said, and then we will go into the the last questions to end the the episode. So you mentioned endocrine disruptors, and I wanted to ask your thoughts on because I've read some research on this, and so you know, like the lavender oil, mm-hmm. like the essential oil, is that a true endocrine disruptor that we know of? Well, I think it depends what's in it. Um, they're not all the same, right? Right. Sometimes. There are certain components, you know, some of which are found to be safe, some of which are, you know, associated with uh, compounds that have been shown to have like estrogen like effects in young boys, like causing prepubertal changes, like in breast size and things like that. But I think that the data is very mixed. And I would say, you can't really study this in isolation. I think we're still learning a lot about Mm -hmm. it. So I think a lot of these types of things, it's not essential. It's not something that you have to be using. If you're trying to conceive or you're pregnant, these might be things that are worth cutting out for sure. Like I think anything like essential oils or fragrance, like, you know, less is more. That's kind of my motto. Yeah. 
Okay. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you on that was in the beginning, you were talking about tracking fertility. What are the best methods that you would recommend for tracking fertility? So first things first, use a calendar. You can use an electronic calendar. A lot of apps are are beneficial because they're already doing all of the work for you in terms of calculating your fertile window. It's most beneficial to women who have a regular cycle where they're getting their period after a predictable interval of time. So just noting when you get the first day of your full flow menstrual cycle, not like the first day when you're spotting, but actual full flow, that's called day one of your cycle. And once you start charting that, and then you chart the next one and the one following after, you're basically doing some groundwork, some research where you're figuring out the frequency with which you ovulate. And this doesn't apply to every single human being, nothing does, right? But in general, most people who have ovaries and a uterus are going to get a period always about two weeks after they ovulate. As you mentioned before, sometimes your cycle can be shorter or longer, and sometimes your luteal phase, that phase of your cycle between when you ovulate and when you get your next period, can be shorter or longer for some. But in general, you're going to get some very useful data and trends, which if you plug into apps like the Flow app, which is like one of the biggest- Oh yeah, um, I use that one. Yeah. Yeah. And I've actually done some educational work for them, but I don't own any stock in that company. So I'm not like plugging (laughs) an app or a product. I just want to put that out there. But they will tell you based on when you get, you know, your first day of your menstrual period and over time looking at that data and that trend, they'll be able to tell you, okay, this is your fertile window, which is essentially- two to three days before you actually ovulate. The reason why that timing is so important is because when you release an egg into the fallopian tube from one side or the other, and by the way, it doesn't alternate, it's very random. You could ovulate from one side, like the right side, five times in a row. Mm-hmm. There's no rhyme or reason. Um, that's an often often asked question that I get. That's why I bring it up. But when that egg gets released, it only survives for about 12 to 24 hours, and then it disintegrates. And then you have to wait till that next egg gets released the following month. So making sure sperm is in the reproductive tract before the egg is released is the most fruitful thing to do because the sperm can survive for three to five days. So it's always better to have a bunch of sperm just sitting there waiting waiting the egg. Yeah, to maximize overlap between the sperm and the egg. The other thing you can do is ovulation predictor kits. They're basically picking up the hormonal signal from your pituitary gland in your brain that's being sent to your ovary to tell it to ovulate. It filters through the kidney into your urine. So when you pee on those sticks, and you might want to pee on those sticks starting like on day nine or 10 of your Mm -hmm. cycle if day one is your full flow day, and start peeing on them, you know, once or twice a day. And if you get a positive result, that means it's picking up that signal from your brain to the ovary and you have about half a day to 36 hours to be trying. That's mm-hmm. your window of opportunity because it takes time for the signal to actually make ovulation happen. Yeah. And you know what? I will add to that. So I used these with my fourth and I mean, I would test day and night, like as closer I got like day 11, day two, because mine, I found that in the morning it would be normal. And then I would peak at night and then I'd in the, by the morning it was back to normal again. So I was like, oh yeah. shoot, I just missed that. <laughs> yes. It's pulsatile. So, That's yes. what a lot of people. So, so many of my patients will say, 
I'm, I know I'm not ovulating. And I say, but you wrote down that you get a period every 28 days. They're like, but I don't ever get a positive ovulation predictor mm-hmm. kit. And I always ask them and they always say the same thing. I'm only checking once a day. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. like, no, you need to start checking like every six to 12 hours yes. because you're just missing it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that's, yeah, I think that's important. So let's end with the the two questions I typically ask everybody I have on. So the first one is, what would be one piece of advice that you would give to moms? And it can be about anything. It doesn't need to be about what we talked about today. Okay. I think the most important thing, just going along the theme or the, along the lines of what we talked about earlier, and the fact that you and I connected over social media I think there is so much information and noise and opinions out there, even beyond social media. Like when I was pregnant, I mean, my, my extended family, like family friends, like people love Mm -hmm. to chime in and give you advice. And I'm like, hello, I'm an OBGYN. I think I know I'm okay to exercise right now. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks for your concern. But, um, you know, there's a lot of noise everywhere and with social media, I think it's particularly dangerous especially during a time like a pandemic where so many of us were just like cooped up in our homes and looking to social media to connect us to information and people that were spreading information. So I think that you have to look at the source very critically. And I think there are certain red flags, which I mentioned earlier, if someone is trying to sell you their book, their supplements, it's not a bad thing that people are trying to monetize based on, you know, what they're interested or passionate about. I'm not against that. But I think if they're giving you extreme advice and they're also trying to sell you things, prime example, you know, I'm not here to talk about the vaccine, but that happens a lot where like a lot of people that are anti-vaccine, COVID vaccine are like, yeah, don't do that. But here's this wellness package that's going to help prevent COVID, you know? So like, I think it's really important to read between the lines and be skeptical. For some reason in society, I've seen this very strong trend towards mistrust of modern medicine, conventional medicine, Mm -hmm. and favoring of the essential oils and the things that are labeled as natural. Mm -hmm. But things aren't always what they seem. Yeah. And not regulated whatsoever. (laughs) Correct. Exactly. So I think at the end of the day, it's always going to serve you well to fact check. And the easiest things to do when you're thinking about women's health is go to websites like the American College of OBGYN or ACOG. If you're looking into fertility stuff, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, they do have patient-friendly pamphlets and information, and you can find a lot of good information there. So just because it's some large, like stuffy professional organization doesn't mean that they don't have, uh, they haven't created avenues for patients and just women in general to access good information. That's mm-hmm. easy to understand. So I think that that is a resource that's underutilized. Yes. Awesome. Okay. The next question is if you could make one meal that is quick and easy that everybody in your family would eat, what would it be? So I make this. I call it like a Mexican lasagna and it's delicious. And I feel like for a lasagna, it's extremely healthy. Basically, I don't use any meat. I'm not a vegetarian, but like, you know, sometimes I'll I'll, I'll take a break from meat and like try to eat more vegetables, which I hear is good for you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. So (laughs) I'll use kidney beans and I'll use kidney beans mixed with like green pepper, red pepper, 
onions and I'll make it a little bit spicy and, you know, use like a little bit of cheese, but mostly like tomato sauce, bechamel sauce, and, you know, just two different layers of pasta. So it's like light packed with vegetables, legumes, like it's just, but it's so delicious. And your kids eat it. Well, I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old, yes. so they will eat it eventually. <laughs> this is the thing I am finding so difficult. Like I have my my eight-year-old; she eats anything and everything, like any anything. So it's it's made my life actually more difficult, I think, because my other three won't eat anything, <laughs> and yeah. I'm like, but she eats everything, and they go through phases. You know, it's like for a couple months, they'll eat everything. And then all of a sudden, it's like on strike. You know, it's like tonight we had the same meal we had a couple months ago. Everybody loved it. They all ate it. Tonight, one out of four. I'm like, come on, guys. Do you, are you a mom that would ever make like a separate meal for everyone? Oh, eating. Hell no. Okay. I, first of all, like, yeah, no, I I don't have time. (laughs) I don't have the energy, but I also just don't want them like, I mean, how are they ever going to like try new things or get, you you know, if they're not anyway. So yeah, no, I do tonight. They just went to bed hungry. Yeah. So like they didn't eat the dinner. Well, actually my son who's four came home from um, lacrosse practice and was like, I'm hungry, mom. I think I'll take some of those meatballs. I was like, okay, (laughs) sure. So then he ate some of those and then went to bed. My six-year-old, she, yeah, she didn't eat anything. And then, uh, but she like, she'll make up for it. Like she'll just eat a huge breakfast or something, Yeah, but you know, I'm like, whatever. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm feeding you like 90% healthy. So I don't care if you eat a big breakfast and no dinner. That does, you know, that's, that's fine with me. Yeah. They self-regulate. Yes. Yes, they do. I don't know. Mine go through phases. They're still very young. I would say my oldest like really loves carbs. Like she just loves cheese and bread, like all the toddler things. Who doesn't? I know. But my youngest like is like, I feel like she's like a little Olympian. Like she's always like exercising and doing squats and she's like (laughs) eating like avocado and blueberries. Like she only wants like the healthy superfoods. I'm like, who is this? Oh, that's really funny. (laughs) Actually, my six-year-old is like, she just like became, like she's basically a vegetarian. It's very strange. We are not, like we eat anything and everything. We don't like specifically eat one particular diet or anything. And so it's very funny because I'm like, why aren't you eating? And she's like, oh mom, I'll just take more green beans. I'm like, what? Yeah. Like no, my oldest is a vegetarian. We all eat meat and she's like, no meat. Yeah. No, thank you. That was like her her first sentence was no meat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, how do you even know what meat is? So I think these are just like ingrained habits. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, so I'm interested to see like how that all plays out, you know, like I don't know. Is this just her for the rest of her life or will she, no, who knows? I you think know? it'll get easier. Oh yeah. That's what I have to hope. <laughs> it's what keeps us going. Exactly. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your night. I, I really appreciate it. I learned a lot and I hope that everybody that is listening did too. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun to talk to you. You know, if I think there were a lot of questions today, so I would love to do this again. Oh, yeah. Uh, so that, you know, we can do like a Q&A or something next time. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'll uh, I'll gather some more and we can, I'll, I'll write them down ahead of time and we'll be able to, maybe even we'll do like one of these like rapid fire type of Q&As where it's like yeah, one after the other. Yeah, it'd be fun. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. You too. 
Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. All resources mentioned in this episode can be found in the show notes on lindsayandco.com. To continue these important conversations, head over to Motherhood Meets Medicine on Instagram. Let me know what you learned from this episode and who you would love to hear from next. I always love getting feedback from you. If you're finding value in this podcast, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. This will help us to reach even more women from around the world. I'll catch you next week. Until then, don't forget to find some time to unplug, unwind, and have a little fun. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.